0: Bar One podcast inaugural mm-hmm. episode. Our guest today is going to be Kean Still. How are you, Kean
1: I'm doing great, man. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. So tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, I currently work for William Grant & Sons. I'm an on-premise specialist, so I deal with staff education and brand advocacy for our core brands, Glenfiddich, Balvini, Monkey Shoulder, Tullamordu, and Hendrix Gin.
0: Nice man. So, how did you get started in the bar and restaurant industry in the first place?
1: Well, I actually started in Spain. I got a side job while I was doing a study abroad program. Really liked it. Uh, the lady there actually nursed me through my first hangover. And when I came back to America, I pretty much kept it going. wasn't a whole lot of job market back in two thousand and seven. So, ended up in some high end restaurants and just kept learning and loving what I was doing.
0: That was your first hangover?
1: Yeah, I didn't start drinking till I was 22.
0: No shit. Mm-hmm. Is the first time you drank the first time you got a hangover?
1: No, took me about a month.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how it works like that. It's almost like working out. Like once you start working out, you don't really see results for like a little bit. And then like after you do it for a little bit, it starts setting in. It's just the opposite way with boozing. Like you're fine for a little
1: bit. I remember the first time I got the spins, I just sat in my bed and just laughed the whole time because I thought it was awesome. Not so fun anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like uh, when uh, So I'm 27 And you're how old? 34 So when I hear 21 year olds talk about hangovers I just want to slap them in the fucking face Yeah You don't know what a hangover is
1: Mm-mm. No, it's just not the same Your whole body, you can't even feel anything Like I uh, like my newest expression is being dumb over You just drink so much the night before You, you don't even know how to speak or be in public mm.
0: Yeah I read a statistic that I think it's the United States loses like $2 million a year in productivity simply because of hangovers. And I'm not surprised because I'm stupid, dumb, dumb doo-doo pants when I'm fucked up.
1: Well, if you uh, follow Pedialyte, they just started making their product for adults now and it sold out on Amazon in like four hours.
0: <laughs> do what did <do> <laughs> that say about like our culture that there's like an entire science field just built around limiting hangovers?
1: Uh, that we're figuring it out. and trying to help a, help a brother out. <laughs>
0: Going to be like those, uh, it's going to be like transporting messages via horse and carriage. That's how we're going to see hangovers in like 50 years.
1: Yeah. I think you're going to see a lot more of those pop up IV plant things, just trucks all over the place and people just getting shit faced all the time. It's going to be great.
0: I can't wait for it. (laughs) Um, All right. So, 34 now, you were 21 years old when you got into the bar industry?
1: Yeah, right around then.
0: So, was it mostly a pursuit of just sort of a side job that got you interested or did you always have an an interest in the bar and restaurant industry?
1: No, it was absolutely a side job. It wasn't something I really wanted to do. Uh, I was in fast food in high school and just really didn't make a disconnect to it until after I went to Spain and see how people really enjoy drinking there. It's not the same as it is here where we do get all these hangovers. It's more of like a way of life where you drink with what you're eating and if you're not eating, it's not really that idea that you're going to go out and get drunk.
0: Mm, interesting.
1: Yeah, it's a much slower pace, and it's much more ingrained in their culture there, so they start drinking at an earlier age. It's not uncommon to see like a 14-year-old having a glass of wine with dinner
0: there. It's interesting. I'd love to have a different episode where we just talk about sort of intercultural drinking habits.
1: I think we should just get on a plane and go to Europe.
0: That's a good fucking idea. Yeah. You can write off the whole trip. Exactly. Um, so... Today's episode is called Whiskey Business. It's specifically about whiskey, given that Kean has sort of a specialty in the liquors themselves with his job and his past occupations. So uh, we just want to talk about whiskey, man. Talk about, you know, what goes into whiskey, everything about whiskey, who drinks whiskey, what can you drink whiskey with? So So what if I'm a beginner, if I've never had a sip of whiskey before, what should I know about it?
1: Biggest thing is to know that it's a different way of drinking. If you go and you're drinking whiskey neat and you approach it like a beer, it's gonna burn. It's a much higher alcohol content. Whiskey ranges in between about 40% alcohol all the way up to sometimes 62% alcohol. When you're talking about a beer that's normally 5%, it's a much more aggressive way to attack your face with the alcohol that's going on. It blows out your nose, you can't smell anything anymore. Alcohol is actually a natural anesthetic, so when it hits your tongue, you can't taste anything, and it burns. So the way to combat that is you treat a neat whiskey like you're drinking a really hot cup of coffee. Really nice, slow st- sips and enjoy it rather than just trying to get through it.
0: Gotcha. So is that what we're doing right now with what you brought?
1: Yeah, we brought a little bit of Tullamore Dew Cider Cask. It's a really nice apple accent to our standard Tullamore Dew. Um, But it's not a note that you're generally going to get from it if you're just taking shots of it. So by sipping it and taking your time with it, you can really analyze it and get in past those initial flavors of just caramel that you're going to find in any kind of brown liquor in the first place. Um, whiskey is this kind of unique thing that it really tells a story from the grain to the glass. So you have uh, whiskey in general is made from grains. You make a rudimentary beer, you distill that, and then you're going to put it in some sort of oak cask. So when you do that, You get the changeover from the grain to your beer, you send it through a chemical process, and then you put an organic barrel and you let it sit there for years at a time. So every time you do this, you're going to have a different flavor coming out. So it's a really interesting way to see science and art come together in a spirit realm.
0: So what's you mentioned that we'll put it in a barrel and it'll be waiting, sort of sitting there for you know, up to a few years, what's sort of the earliest amount of time, or shortest amount of time that a whiskey will have been aged generally?
1: Legally, you can put bourbon into a barrel, roll it down the street and dump it out. And it's still called bourbon. Uh, when you start looking at the key words on a bottle like straight bourbon, those actually carry laws behind them. So you have to have a certain grain percentage. Straight bourbon has to be 51% corn, at least 51% corn it has to be aged at least two years. Uh, If you want to not have an age statement on the bottle, you have to age it for at least four years. So you're seeing quality driven on the label that way. So knowing how to read a whiskey label is actually pretty important. Words like reserve and small batch don't have a whole lot of weight to them when it comes to the legal definition. Not to say that you have small batch, they could be taking more care in making that, I'm not dogging the word in itself, it just doesn't carry any legal weight to it. So something like a bottled and bond um, was actually one of the first laws made by the Food and Drug Administration because they wanted to protect our bourbon industry. So you have to be uh, four years old at least, 50% alcohol, uh, aged um, under tax regulation. So you have the government oversight making sure that you're not adding any random additives. It all comes from one growing season. You have to list a um, distillery that it came from. So it's really a very clear open book way of showing what you actually are putting into your whiskey. You really can't get away with anything.
0: Now you mentioned whiskey, but then you also mentioned bourbon. And I've been in the industry for seven years and I'm a pretty avid bourbon drinker. But I feel like a lot of people don't actually know what the difference between whiskey and bourbon is. For instance, when I got to the bar that I run, I was in the computer where we were everything in and there was a button for bourbon. And when I hit bourbon, it opened up every single whiskey that we had, including Jack Daniels, Jameson, the whole nine yards, which is wrong, correct?
1: Yes, it is legally incorrect to put all of those in the same category as bourbon because bourbon has a legal definition. Bourbon has to be made in the United States. It does not have to be made in Kentucky, although most of it does come from there. Uh, It has to be, like I said, at least 51% corn. Um, and it has to be put into a new charred American oak barrel. So there are legal definitions that actually make something bourbon. Rye is the same idea. You have to make 51% rye new charred American oak barrel made in the United States. Um, so like when you see things like scotch and Irish whiskey, those are all whiskeys. Cause again, that base law is something that comes from grain that you distilled and you put into a barrel. The uh, age requirements are going to be different for each different type of whiskey that you have.
0: Interesting. Now, you mentioned it doesn't have to be in Kentucky, but Kentucky is obviously famous for Whiskey Row. I mean, so many Maker's Mark, Old Forester. I mean, so many bourbons themselves are from Kentucky. Why is that? Is it because of the culture or the uh, the environment?
1: Uh, the environment has a lot to do with it. Uh, Westward expansion has a lot to do with it. Uh, you had a lot of settlers coming there, a lot of farmers it just kind of had this really nice catch-all of all the things that you need to make good whiskey the rivers run through there so it's easy to transport when you're moving these barrels they're not very light so if you don't have a good system to get them around then it's not a very effective way to move your supply around barrels are actually just to use used to move product lots of different product uh, before we know them the day is usually used for making whiskey so That char that you add to that barrel was originally used to clean out whatever was in there before because they were moving fish, pickles, vinegar, all kinds of different things in these barrels. So if you didn't char your barrel and you put something else in there, obviously those flavors are going to intermingle and that's not what you want. So by using a new charred American oak barrel, you're not running the risk of having some other off flavor getting into whiskey
0: tell me people don't like their bourbon to taste like pickles and fish.
1: Um, I actually love bourbon with pickles. I think it's delicious. If you uh, really analyze the flavors you can get out of American oak, dill is a very prominent herb flavor that you can get. Um, I drink a lot of scotch now, so whenever I go back to bourbon, it is a very, very prominent nose for me is dill. So obviously we know dill pickles. It actually makes a really nice combination.
0: Interesting. I feel like a lot of people would think of gin when they think of uh, dill.
1: Well, I wouldn't say that they're wrong. It's still a really nice pairing. Dill's a good flavor. It's why we put it in a lot of food. You think about food and spirits, a lot of that overlaps. At the end of the day, you're just intermingling flavors. So when I started really getting into the spirits industry and started making cocktails, my cooking at home got much better because I was actively tasting for different flavors rather than just eating or drinking to fill me up or get me drunk. You're looking for those accents to have a really nice experience, which is another really good reason why you should drink whiskey slow. It evolves. It's going to taste different every time, which is why it's one of my favorite categories of uh, spirits, because you're going to constantly get something new out of it.
0: At my bar, I like to, when I am messing around with some cocktails or we bring on a new spirit, I like to get our chef involved. And I've done that, you know, throughout the years because chefs generally have that really refined palate. You know, if you sample them on a beer or a whiskey, whatever it may be, um, you know, they're able to pick out things that the general public isn't able to. Um, So I always think it's enjoyable to get their perspective on it because they'll pick out these tiny little notes that the normal person wouldn't even think might be in the flavor profile, but they're able to pinpoint because of their palate.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's just a different way of thinking how you're taking in things if you're looking for flavors all the time. If you're really good at looking at flavor in whiskey, you'll find more flavors in wine. You'll find more flavors in food, beer. It really is a nice crossover because it's just a different way of approaching what you're eating and drinking. Now, you mentioned
0: Scotch and Irish whiskey. So, obviously, Irish whiskey is from Ireland. Absolutely. Scotch is from Scotland. So, what, besides the countries of origin, what are some big differences that someone should know between bourbon, Irish whiskey, Scotch, and if there's any other sort of categories that we haven't mentioned.
1: Irish whiskey follows more of a template that they've used. It's not necessarily all of the legal things that you need. They can use multiple different kinds of grains. They can use multiple different kinds of casks. They can use pot stills. They can use column stills and each of those things are going to impart different flavors. But what you normally are going to find is Um, barley used as the main grain. Sometimes they'll use corn as the supporting characteristic and a lot of times that is actually distilled through a column still that makes it almost neutral in flavor because of the alcohol percentage that it gets up to. The more alcohol percentage that you get, the more of the initial flavor that is actually lost. So as you distill more, that's why vodka is so tasteless because you distill it so high. So it's supposed to be something that's going to be more of a palate cleanser than that thing that really brings the flavor home. Um, Irish whiskey can use sherry casks, they can use different sizes of stills, um, but I mean originally them and Scotland were making pretty similar whiskey. It just kind of came down to like the differences in the history that they have. So uh, yeah it's, it's pretty interesting what they can get away with. Uh, Scotland, um, the main thing you need to know about Scotland is they can make a lot of the same things as Irish whiskey But when you get into single malt, that's when the rules really come into play. It has to be 100% malted barley, has to be pot still, has to be an oak cast for at least three years, although most of them are much, much more aged than that. Uh, The climate there is a lot different than it is here. So when you think about the Midwest having negative five degrees in the winter and 105 in the summer, when you're using a barrel, you're really getting the extraction of flavors. So those big temperature shifts have a lot to do with the flavor that comes out of the wood when you have something like scotland where it's 30 degrees to 70 degrees your temperature shifts are much lower so you're have a much slower more gentle extraction rather than the violent extraction you get out of an american whiskey
0: what is your sort of preferred style of just overall whiskey
1: I've went through every category. I really liked Irish whiskey for a while. I still do. I still like all the categories. Um, I got into bourbon really hard when I ran a bourbon bar. Um, But now I would definitely have to say that scotch is my favorite style. Um, With the long aging periods of those grains, they really have some time to develop some really cool chemical compositions that make them have drastically different flavors. You can use different barrels to finish in. Um, so you really open up that flavor palette where bourbon is very, very great and credible. It really has a very tight range of flavor with the strict regulations that it has nothing to say wrong about that. Those, that's why it, it's so good and so pro- prolific. But when you're looking for a lot of differences in whiskey, scotch is really where it's at. You have smoky whiskeys and most scotch whiskey actually isn't smoky at all. Although most people think it's going to be.
0: Yeah, I was at a uh, I was at an event recently and there was whiskey from all over. I mean, just whiskey as far as I can see. I got good and uh good and drunk there. It was pretty pretty great. It's great when you get really toasted at an event like that because it's not like you're, you know, it's not like you're at a frat party and just chugging beers. You know, you're sipping this nice whiskey. You're hearing about it, learning about it, but you're just housing it and just getting tanked
1: well i like i actually like your first example better of toasted because when you drink whiskey really nice and slow like that it is this really nice warm buzz rather than the all of a sudden i don't know where my keys are there's gum in my hair and i think i fell down in the bathroom so um whiskey is a really nice if you drink it slowly um the way i prefer to drink it i i'll drink it neat i'll add a little bit of water to it But, uh, yeah, when I first started drinking it around my friends, they all thought I was an alcoholic, but I would drink one whiskey in a half an hour and watch them pound three beers in two shots. So their tabs were higher. They were a lot more drunk than I was, and I was a nice, even toasty, as you put it earlier. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I think back to, you know, being at a frat party in college, paying five bucks for a cup, and just getting just the cheapest, crappiest beer they had. That's half foam. And then I think now to coming home from work, you know, cracking open a bottle of Talmor Dew, and sitting down and enjoying it—you know, not just let me get tanked and shit-faced and see how big of an ass I can make out of myself. It's really an enjoyment, as you said, of the liquor itself.
1: Just remember that any time that you are going out and drinking, you are paying for it one way or the other. If you're paying a very cheap price, then you will pay a very dear price the next morning. So sometimes it's nice to go for that next shelf up.
0: Yeah, especially if you're. If you have a you know a nice whiskey to sip on, and you are enjoying it, you know you know you know the flavors. You're, you can at least appreciate the flavors. You know you're going to want to enjoy it a little bit more than you know if you're just kind of trying to get housed. For instance, if you know if I'm at home or if I'm at a bar and I'm drinking some sort of bourbon neat, and the glass finishes, I'm usually a little bummed. You know it's not all right. Let me get this down the hatch. Let me get tanked. Let me get shit faced. It's and once I get down to the bottom, I'm like, ah, crap, you know, it's, there's, there's no more.
1: Yeah, well, that's also one of the beautiful things about whiskey. It leaves you wanting a little bit more, and there's a lot of them out there to try. So finishing that glass just means you can put something else in it. Um, some other cool things to know about just kind of reading the label when you think, see things like single barrel or cast strength or chill filtered versus non-chill filtered. Um, single barrel is going to have a lot of variation in it. There's a very incredible art of blending barrels together when you hear blended scotch um, that's actually different grains different scotch builds where uh, every whiskey that doesn't say single barrel on it has blending to some point Um, but it just means that it's the same whiskey put in different barrels like I said before a barrel is very organic so you can set two barrels in a warehouse leave them there for 10 years come back and they will taste drastically different so you have to have that artistry to it um, Cast strength means that you're going to pour it out of the barrel, you can filter it, but you're not adding any water to it. So those are generally coming in around 56 to 63% alcohol, which is a really pretty big kick. that's going to hit you a, little, a lot harder than that normal 40 to 45% range. Um, and then you get into chill filtration versus non-chill filtration. And then there's a big backstory on that, but uh, essentially. Chill filtering, you make the whiskey cold and you filter it, uh, which pulls out a lot of the oils that you got out of the wood and the initial distillate. And when you think about oils, they carry a lot of flavor. So by chill filtering something, you can actually cut out a lot of that flavor. But sometimes it's nice to chill chill filter something and you get that nice even flavor. So it kind of just depends on the style of the distiller and what they want to see in their whiskey. But you're seeing a lot more chill filtered whiskeys come back on the market because it was more of just a marketing craze when it first came out because people were afraid their whiskey was bad. Um, with Prohibition hitting the United States, knocked out whiskey whiskey out production for a good. I mean, before it actually caught back up, it was another 20 years. So by that time, refrigeration had become a big thing and preservatives had become a big thing. Um, so people were bringing their whiskey home, throwing it in the freezer. gets cloudy and they think they had bad whiskey. And really, it's just all those oils starting to come together and coagulate, which is makes a really nice flavor across the palate.
0: Nice, so you mentioned Prohibition. So everyone everyone knows what Prohibition was. Was it 13 years? There was no uh, alcohol made or made legally or sold legally or consumed legally in the United States? Well,
1: you could could actually drink alcohol um, during Prohibition, but you weren't able to buy it. No one was able to sell it. Uh, So it actually really helped out the other whiskey producers around the world Um, But they all had their own prohibition problems as well. So everyone kind of took their turn on that. Um, But it really set bourbon back for even after prohibition ended a few decades after that because drinking trends had changed and people were trying to put out their whiskey as fast as they could. They weren't going through the same quality that they had before. A lot of distilleries had shut down. A lot of distillers had retired. So you really lost a large gap of the talent that was making the great whiskeys of the world at the time. It's a goddamn shame. Yeah, we, we. I think we've recovered. I don't think whiskey has ever been better than it is right now, and I think it's only going to get better. Um, a lot of these new distilleries, um, they're putting out some interesting products. I think that over time, they will find the price point that makes more sense for them when they don't have to worry about paying off their distillery and all of their equipment. Um, some of these older distilleries, like... Jim Beam and Wild Turkey, they've been around for so long that they can really make great whiskey for a pretty cheap price because they don't have that overhead that the smaller distilleries have. So it's uh, it's going to be interesting over the next 10, 20 years to see who's popping up and where this goes and see how much of the actual whiskey production in America filters out of Kentucky. Um, but with the crazy trend of whiskey right now I think that Kentucky will be just fine for decades to come because people are just drinking more and more of it
0: yeah you mentioned you know Makers Mark and Gin being been around so long so they can offer a better price it seems like there's a little bit of a perceived correlation between price and quality of the whiskey which naturally I think you know if you put more into it it's going to be more expensive therefore better quality but you know I think for instance spirit like Jim Bean, I think it gets a little bit of a bad rep because of its cheap price.
1: It can. um, But you have to remember, even though they are doing that much production, it is impossible to make whiskey without having a craft to it. So um, I would never dog any of those distilleries. I think they do amazing jobs. You have some of the oldest distillers in the world coming out of these guys. Um, Jimmy Russell over at Uh, Wild Turkey I mean he is renowned around the world for his contributions to whiskey so uh, yeah I wouldn't knock them. I mean they have some really great stuff I still love Wild Turkey 101 I think it's great Uh, Knob Creek and even the Jim Beam Bonded that's coming out of Jim Beam right now is good so there's there's good whiskey coming out of those areas they're not going to put anything in a bottle that they don't really believe in because they don't need to anymore
0: I love when beer and spirits team up you know, for instance, Jim Bean is doing their, uh, I think it's called the Copper Copper Edition, Budweiser. Yeah. Something like that. And I know a lot more and more beers and whiskey specifically, but spirits overall are sort of teaming up to make these cool new products. Um, I, I mean, I love that sort of idea of innovation and collaboration instead of you do you, we'll do us, and we'll see who ends up being victorious. You know, it's, it's that working together to make that phenomenal
1: product. I think that's some really good self-awareness on both of their sides and it's a natural proge- progression you think about how whiskey is made like I said you basically make a beer so uh, there's a reason that whiskey and beer play so well together you're just seeing basically two different levels of production um, I mean the beer that they make for whiskey is obviously a little different that's not going to be as clean that's not the finished product but it is essentially the same steps to get to that point
0: so if You know, we talked about what should a beginner know about whiskey. So if I am a patron at a bar, you know, if you you and I go to a bar and want to drink whiskey, we know what we're going to order. We know what brand we're going to order, how we're going to order it. You know, we know what we like. But let's say someone listening is of the mindset, I want to get into whiskey. I want to learn more about whiskey. I want to become a whiskey drinker, uh, which I think there's a sort of... uh, connotation to being a whiskey drinker that people are sort of attracted to. I think it's sort of a sophistication that people want to sort of move towards, especially as they get older, you know, as they get into their mid-20s, late-20s, early-30s, you know, they want to learn more, sort of fall into that drinking pattern as opposed to, you know, the just housing beers or whatever it may be to get drunk. Um, so if someone does want to go that route, what would you recommend to them in terms of maybe styles
1: to start off on or
0: the way to order their whiskey
1: uh definitely start off with the lower abv ones i would never recommend someone give someone a five-year-old black coffee and expect them to like it so when you get into the whiskey realm and you end up picking out a cash strength whiskey and try to drink that neat and wonder why it burns and it's not approachable it's because that is one of the most difficult things to drink it's the same thing in the Scotch world. If you start with really smoky, aggressive whiskey, it's difficult to get into the category. There's nothing wrong with those brands. It's just they're not necessarily the gateway into the the actual drinking of whiskey. Um, classic cocktails like a whiskey sour, old-fashioned. Uh, one of my favorites is actually a John Collins. It's a, uh, basically a whiskey sour with club soda. So it really lightens it up makes it more approachable. Um, there's nothing wrong with drinking your whiskey that way. So uh, if you want to taste the nuances of it, obviously you're going to need to taste it neat. But once you taste it neat, do whatever you want with it. There's really no right way to drink whiskey as long as you understand why you're drinking it that way.
0: Yeah, I think I started because I was just you know, a beer guy at one point like most people. Um, and I started drinking whiskey and bourbon, but I started drinking them as old fashions. And I remember I started because my roommate at the time would often drink Old Fashions. And I think it was a bit of, he was sort of a guy that I sort of wanted to be like. You know, he was, he had a vibe, he had an energy to him that I sort of wanted to emulate. So I think it was, I don't even know if it was conscious, it might have been subconscious. You know, we were at a bar and he ordered an Old Fashioned and I said, yeah, you know, I've done shots of whiskey you know i, I rip whiskey as shots all the time so let I me mean, get an old-fashioned with him and sort of enjoy it and i think that sort of bridged the gap from all right i started drinking old fashions, which i, which I still drink quite often uh, i started drinking old fashions, sort of started gaining that or that appreciation for whiskey that sort of gave way to you know drinking whiskey on the rocks or neat to having I think I've got one bottle of vodka on my shelf, but the rest are all whiskey, besides one bottle in the Lord, uh, just to screw people over when they come to visit. But yeah, it's just whiskey and and predominantly bourbon on that shelf.
1: Well, I mean, you said the old-fashioned. The old-fashioned is called that for a reason. It's literally the old-fashioned cocktail. Dates back to basically what is the bittered sling of just sugar, bitters. You add a twist of lemon or orange. Uh, I'm just talking about the peel to it and you really have a really nice expression of a spirit. It opens it up, it makes it more approachable. You still get the notes that are coming from the original spirit. It's not gonna be necessarily as in depth. Um, the sugar will do change the flavor, the bitters are gonna change the flavor, but it's a really nice way to get into drinking really any spirit. I mean, I drink gin old fashions, I drink tequila old fashions. Um, Old fashioned really is more—it's almost more of a style of cocktail than a specific one. So
0: gin old fashioned, the so.
1: mm-hmm. great. I mean, you're basically doing the same thing—you're lightening the alcohol content, you're adding some sweetness. If you know anything about flavor, adding sweetness, saltiness, citrus, uh, bitterness to it really opens up the tongue in a way where you can actually taste more flavor. So it's the same reason they put salt in ice cream—it's not to make it salty; it's to make everything else come out. Well,
0: that's interesting. I know. Uh, I know in eating contests, if someone's eating of Uh, a lot of one flavor like if they're eating something that's really salty for instance you know after a while their body doesn't want to eat any more of that but if they switch it up to like something sweet then they're able to go back to that salty or whatever that other flavor is in order to get it down a little bit more
1: that's i didn't know that that's an interesting fact and that makes sense yeah i mean your body starts to reject things that it doesn't need anymore it's natural it's supposed to so um it's actually kind of weird that we appreciate bitter so much because in nature bitter just means poison so it's um, it's kind of nice that we've evolved to be able to at least appreciate it without killing ourselves, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of the most bitter
1: plants, I think the number one
0: beverage drink in the world is tea. I think right second after that is coffee.
1: Yeah, I would think that's probably true. Tea is definitely up there, number one. Um, and honestly, what we think of tea is a little different anywhere, anywhere else in the world. It's like, I mean, I've heard of people making tea out of hot water and a stick, so... Basically, just an extraction of natural flavors from plants, um, which is, side note,
0: interesting. Yeah, even coffee itself, you know, we think, or not coffee, chocolate. Even chocolate, we think that this delicious, sweet candy, but the cocoa plant
1: itself is extremely bitter. Yeah. I mean, that's why dark chocolate's so bitter, because it's more natural cocoa. I remember speaking to, uh, actually,
0: a mutual friend of ours when I was going over to drinking black coffee. You know, I drank milk and uh, milk and sugar forever, but I wanted to switch over to black coffee. And when I was speaking to my friend, he said, yeah, I drink black coffee. And I started drinking black coffee when he got more into whiskey. Because as we talked about sort of developing that palate and that, um, that recognition of those flavors and the appreciation for them, he was then able to appreciate the bitterness from black coffee a little bit more. So that might be, Anyone listening, if you're a black coffee drinker that and you want to get into whiskey and bourbon, that actually might be a much easier transition for them since it's got sort of a similar flavor profile in that sense. And then you can toss a shot of Tellemordieu in there and make
1: it even better. There you go. Original <laughs> Irish coffee.
0: <laughs> there you go. Yeah, when uh, you know we were speaking about old fashions, anyone listening, I do want to make one distinction there are sort of two kinds of whiskey or bourbon old-fashions you could get. There's one where they muddle a cherry and orange in there, and there's another style where it's simply whiskey, sugar, or simple syrup, which is sugar and water, and bitters in there. I cannot stand the version with the orange and the cherry in there. If I get that on accident, I like have to suck it down. The other style, I mean, at my bar, that's the kind of style that we make with a brown sugar simple syrup. I mean that is what I'll go with all the time. As soon as I see them bust out that cherry and orange, I start cringing.
1: I've actually felt that same way for a while and then I had one of the best old fashions that was muddled with cherry and orange. And it's how you muddle and what you're doing. If you're just destroying that orange and that cherry, all you're getting is the bitter off flavors of those two things where if you gently press and get a little of the flavor out there, it can actually come off really nice. I still prefer the one without any muddling at all, but um, yeah, it's just knowing exactly what technique you're using and and why you're doing it. That white part of fruit is bitter and gross. You wouldn't eat it, so why would you muddle the hell of it into your drink? Yeah, anytime they just punish it, I'm just
0: like, oh, god damn it.
1: And I don't want to be
0: that guy that's at a bar and ask before I order, so how do you make your old fashions? You know, I I've worked in the bar industry forever. I don't want to be that guy that has to ask that question, so a lot of times I'll just sort of run the risk or wait for them to send out that, uh, that same product and sort of see how they make it and go from there.
1: I, uh, I have a few different tricks that I use when I go to bars I'm not sure about. Um, I'll ask for a whiskey with a splash of water, some, a little splash of simple, and some bitters and a, a lemon twist. I'm essentially asking for what I want, which is the way I like my old-fashioned, um, and if they know that, then I open up a lot more and see what they know. Um, but yeah, I, you got to have your go tos for any bar that you're in. You can't expect to be at a bar that's four deep and see that they're making basically gin and soda, gin and tonics, and uh, slanging beers and expecting them to make the best Manhattan you've ever had. It's just not really fair to anybody in the room. So um, not to say they couldn't make a really great one, but know your audience, know where you're at.
0: Yeah, it's a really great point because. You know, there's no one-size-fits-it-all it when it comes to bars. You know, you have craft cocktail bars, you have whiskey bars, you have dive bars, you have hotel bars, you have, you know, those corporate chain bars, you have just rage bars, you know, everything sort of in between. So how how do you think that specifically affects sort of what your drink
1: choices uh, can and should entail? Well, I mean, be a little self-aware if you're the only one sitting there drinking in Manhattan and you wonder why it tastes bad, it's probably because that bar doesn't do Manhattan's. They might not have used that vermouth in six months. Um, If their vermouth's sitting out and it's not in the refrigeration and you don't see it being touched, odds are it's probably went bad. Um, So it's something that you kind of have to look around a little bit. If they have a cocktail menu, always ask for the cocktail menu. Look at the cocktail menu. If you recognize a lot of things on there as classics, then they probably know what they're doing. But if it's a bunch of just random juices and sweeteners, then they're that's the crowd that they're going for. Don't think that you're gonna get a bitter Negroni at a place that specializes in Malibu and pineapple. Mm. Neither of those things are wrong. If that's what the clientele wants, let them drink.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because you know, as I said, it's not a one size fits all. There are you know so many different sort of concepts, and you know, like you said, being self aware. You know, if you go to a tiki bar, you know, there we have a few tiki bars in our city you go to a tiki bar, you know, you're not going to, I wouldn't order a Manhattan or an old fashioned, you know, you go to kind of what you expect and being the proprietor of a bar, naturally I want to make every guest happy. You know, that's, that's, they're the ones paying my bills, right? So naturally I have that inclination to do so, but it's sort of as, you know, that balance because I can't make everyone happy. You know, if someone says, for instance, you know, not in the terms of whiskey, but if someone says, I got this chicken sandwich and the chicken was tough. Okay, that's something we can fix, right? But if I get a review, someone says, yeah, the music was too loud on a Saturday at 1 a.m. And the, or the DJ played too much, too loud music, you know, it's, it's like, well, you know, maybe this isn't the place for you. So it's sort of that fine balance on wanting to make as many people happy as possible, but sort of knowing what your market is.
1: Well, and yeah, if you're out at one o'clock in the morning and there's a DJ playing, obviously people are out there to have a party. So either be part of the party or go to someplace a little quieter. I mean, that bar might not do that all the time. doesn't mean the bar is bad. It's just, you know, find your place. You know, is there
0: anything in terms of whiskey or bourbon, any sort of notes that you have or any sort of direction that you'd like to give to anyone that, you know, as we talked about, is not a bourbon drinker but wants to be a bourbon drinker maybe they are a bourbon or whiskey drinker but they sort of want to up their game or they want to sort of try some new styles based on their preference you know what what would you recommend to
1: anyone listening out there well first of all whiskey is for everybody Um, I go to a lot of whiskey tastings and I put on a lot of whiskey dinners and uh, it's very aggravating for me when any especially females don't feel like they can ask ask a question Um, generally they ask the best questions and at the end of the event, I'll have people come up to me, look, I never knew that. and It's from other people that didn't even ask ask the question. So feel free to ask questions, go to different whiskey tasting events, get what you want out of it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a culture. It's something that there's definitely a lot of steam behind right now. So if you're looking to get into the category, definitely try a lot of different things, find what you like and find out why you like them. So if you like a specific whiskey, figure out what the alcohol percentage is. Is it chill filtered? Is it finished in something? What are the grains? Where is it from? Find out why you like it, because that'll help you expand into other realms and see if you like other things too and know why. It goes back to that tasting with a purpose kind of idea.
0: I remember I was at a whiskey pairing dinner just a few months ago, and we were at a table, and there were people that were asking great questions and were truly interested, and I learned a lot from the dinner. And... There was one gentleman at our table that knew a lot about bourbon and whiskey. And anytime the person speaking, presenting would ask, he would sort of mutter under under his breath, you know, the answer to his buddy, sort of show like, yeah, I know all this stuff, you know, I'm an expert, yada yada. And I was a little bit frustrated and I was sort of annoyed by the guy. I didn't really want to sit near him anymore. So I was like, I was kind of, of the mentality. And I feel like a lot of people are here to learn. Kind of get off your high horse, man. Like you can always learn from from anyone. It makes you think of and I'm probably butchering this quote, but the man who asks a question is a fool for a second, but the man who never asks a question is a fool for life. Sort of makes me think of that adage.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If that guy wants to teach about whiskey, he should probably have a whiskey tasting at his house. If someone is up there taking their time to explain it to people, maybe they have a different way of explaining it. Maybe they are trying to speak to a certain level of knowledge already. Um, Everyone knows something. No one knows everything. And even if you know as much as somebody else, they probably know something that you don't. So keep your ears open. Stop using your mouth so much when you're at an event like that because you'll learn a lot more that way. Awesome. So given that you're an expert not only in whiskey but
0: the spirits in general, if any of the readers want to reach out with any questions or want to get your advice or expertise on sort of anything, how can they reach you?
1: Uh, best way, um, follow me on Instagram, Drink wisely. You can message me on there. Um, my rule with anything is if I don't know the answer, I probably know someone that does and I'll never tell you something that I don't know. So yeah, I'll probably cite it too, because I'm weird like that. I like to know that people know that I look things up because I don't know all the answers. I just know some. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you. Thanks for having me.